Welcome to the Laura Plantation Podcast. Laura Plantation provides a cultural experience unlike any other in the United States. Here you will find the difference that exemplifies Creole Louisiana. Explore the rigors of 200 years of daily life along with the sobering experience of slavery as it happened at one historic site on the banks of the Mississippi River in the middle of New Orleans plantation country. In this podcast, historian Katie Morlos Shannon and director of PR and marketing Joseph Dunn will be your guides into the Creole world, offering you true, personal, compelling stories of the people who lived, worked, and died at this unique historic site. Real history about real people. Welcome back to the Laura Plantation podcast, Real People, Real History. We're in season one, episode five. Katie, it's been such a pleasure listening to you talk about all of the things and all the history of Laura Plantation over these past podcasts. And I'm, I'm really glad to be back with you today. Yes, I'm glad to have you back. It's so nice to be in conversation with someone and to delve more um, in depth with some of these topics. Actually, yeah, and we're we're finishing up now Black History Month and moving into Women's History Month in March. And you have touched a few times on some of the women who were enslaved at Laura, notably Patience, Tantal, and uh, Lucy. Um, and, you know, back in the very beginning of the Laura Plantation Project, uh, a lot of focus was actually put on women. And that's kind of what set Laura apart in its interpretation from other historic sites in Louisiana, because that sort of focus had never been brought to the uh, interpretation or the narrative that was given about the real role of women in these in these historic settings uh, because you know we just often didn't think about women as having power roles or having um, uh, directional roles or having management roles in these in these plantations and obviously that extended um, not only to the who, uh, quote unquote, owned the plantations, the white women who were owning the plantations, but also to the enslaved women who were working in the house, who were working in the fields, who were managing all sorts of things like women still do today. Yes, it's true that um, from the beginning, Laura stood out in that it discussed the lives of enslaved people and also focused um, on women and women's very important roles in Creole society and in the planta- at the, on the plantation. Um, everywhere from in the house, out to the fields, and in between. And I t- did touch upon Patience, who was Tantal's mother, who was a field laborer and one of the first enslaved people at Laura, and then moved on to Lucy, who was um, an enslaved domestic servant. She was the nurse who took care of the children. So those were two interesting women to kind of um, touch upon. But If you think about it, one of the first stories that we told at Laura kind of spans, also spans both house and and field and um, many different realms of the plantation. Anna and her mother, uh, Anna, the enslaved woman, Anna, with her son, Toussaint, and then Laura and her mother, Desiree. Um, And we kind of that was one of the the stories that was the the building blocks of our, our Laura tour in the early days. Right. And even going back to the 
very beginning of the tour narrative. When we come into the basement from the introduction outside, we talk about Laura's great-grandmother, Nanette, having run the plantation for 21 years after the death of her husband, Guillaume Duparc, because they were the founding couple. And people are always very surprised by that, by the, the fact that women in Louisiana had property rights, that they could um, run plantations, because that's not a story that you hear elsewhere in the canon of American American history. No, and you know, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich and Good Wives and um, her work in colonial um, New England, I, I love her work, but you're right. It, it showcases how colonial New England and colonial Louisiana were very different. And that goes on into the 19th century with the rest of the United States having been based on a common law um, kind of uh, practice and we having are having our civil law in Creole, Louisiana. Nanette must have been a very interesting person, I think, and not the stereotyped plantation mistress that gets um, so often talked about or portrayed in um, film and, and books. Well, I, I kind of see Nanette as a as a frontier woman. I mean, thinking about her growing exactly. up in thinking about her growing up in Natchitoches, um, which was one of these French outposts, actually the first permanent French settlement in the Louisiana in the Louisiana colony west of the Mississippi River. So it really kind of was an an outpost and you know, growing up on this this cotton plantation out there basically in the middle of the wilderness. She had to be a very hearty, hardy woman uh, to, oh, yes. to, to survive that. And then, you know, marry a French military officer moving from fort to fort. And then eventually after Louisiana was sold to the United States in 1803, coming down the river um, to set up this sugar plantation and then manage it for 21 years. I mean, she, she was very much a survivor, but also let's not forget very much a woman of her time who was enslaving people and really having to exert her authority uh, physically uh, over these these enslaved people that uh, were making the fortune that she enjoyed. Well, it's, it's true that she probably led a rather um, rough and tough existence. You know, she came down from Natchitoches, which was kind of a frontier post, to St. James Parish, to um, the plantation, uh, well, we, we call it the plantation along the Mississippi River, but at that time there was nothing there. Other, uh, I mean, there were Native American um, indigenous people living there, but there weren't these massive plantations that we think of today, nor were there really any kind of settlements other than little small gatherings of, of people. So she came and there was nothing there and they had she was faced with transforming this into a business with her husband having widow uh, she was widowed very early and was left to fend for herself with her children and she chose to stay there instead well, of selling out and, and also this this massive transition that i think we often don't realize what a cultural shift happened mm -hmm. as well because you know she grew up in colonial louisiana very much in this feudal society that had been recreated by these these french colonists and then she had to completely transform the entire paradigm of her worldview by by taking this feudal French estate, basically, and turning it into an incorporated business under an American model. And that's a 
pretty significant paradigm shift for how things were were, were playing out very rapidly in Louisiana mm-hmm. after 1803. Well, and if you think about, I, I think that part of our problem with viewing women in the context of history is that we see through a Victorian lens. The Victorian era was, of course, so lengthy and it kind of... Um, for whatever reason, sticks with us in our minds. And so if Nanette had been some woman in the Victorian era, I think it would be far more likely, given the social mores of the time, that she would have sold the land and moved back to Natchitoches to be with her family. But she was colonial, and um, colonial women stepped up to the plate and they had a little bit more leeway in terms of social mores uh, to be able to take on these endeavors like she did. Oh, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I, like you, go back and forth about the idea of Louisiana exceptionalism, but I think there there is really a lot to be said for, you know, Louisiana being an exceptional space historically, and even to a certain extent contemporarily, because, you know, we even see um, the, the vestiges of this whole you know, colonial period and this feudal society that then transcend into today. Because I was talking uh, after a tour the other day with some guests who were here for Mardi Gras. And I said, well, what you're not, when, when you look at this map of the of the river and you see all these plantations here and how all these people were connected, all of that has sort of shifted. If we know what we're looking at into the way that people go to high school in New Orleans, the way that the different Mardi Gras crews are set up, all of that is part of these old Mm -hmm. networks of families that have been here since the colonial period and how they interact with each other and how how they kind of control society, control politics, control uh, economics. And, and, uh, you know, if you if you look through the right lens, you can still see some of that. Oh, definitely. Um, And if you, it's true that there was an exceptionalism here and uh, that there were, uh, this was different in terms of land ownership, particularly in the colonial and then the early national period. Uh, in my, when I was writing my master's thesis, I wrote my master's thesis on Creole women, having been inspired by my first visit to Laura Plantation. And I compared the number of women property holders who appeared on census records in the more northern parishes of Louisiana where cotton was formed and farmed and where it was an Anglo-Saxon background with the women in the sugar parishes, which is includes Nanette, where it was uh, sugar cane along the Mississippi River in the South Louisiana uh, Creole tradition. And there was a definite difference. I mean, it was significantly different at that time, which was about the 18 teens and 1820s um, was when I focused on. Now, granted, as we become more Americanized, things would change. But in that colonial era and then early national era, you can still see there's a definite difference. And that like you said, trickles down today in other ways. Um, trying to explain the meaning of the courts and Rex and Comus to people is just mind blowing. I think to people who aren't from here, that that old world, strange feudal ideas still exist here and are part of the culture, even if it's not, I mean, you and I aren't 
participatory in this necessarily in the same way. So, so there is a class structure here that still exists that I think surprises people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we see it because we, we were born and we grew up here. And even though we're not participating in that because we're not at all in that, right. that level of, of society, uh, the owner families at Laura Plantation were, um, yes. you know, if we look at, you know, uh, Elizabeth, particularly Laura's grandmother, having her house right in the middle of the French Quarter, behind the French Opera House. I mean, immediately behind oh, the French yes. Opera House. I mean, they were at the middle of everything, culturally, societally, um, economically, etc. And then Laura herself, you know, being in the court of Rex as the Duchess of Bourbon. I mean, these were people who were navigating in the upper echelon, the very upper echelons of uh, New Orleans society and even in society in the United States. And that, um, you know, I, even though we sort of see some of that stuff today is very mondain, um, to use the, the French term. Um, mm. These were also, these women were also power brokers. They were very, very much power brokers. Right. So you see them having economic influence, but also having social influence and where those networks intersect. And, you know, but the other thing is, which is always really fascinating, is that even though they were owning property, even though they were navigating within this upper crust society, things like that, there were still social codes that prevented them from doing certain things. Absolutely. Like for, for example, you know, Nanette, when the business gets set up, Nanette Lara's grandmother, when the business gets set up in 1829, she can't go sort of to the marketplace and with the sugar factors and the people like that and negotiate on her own behalf for what her right. prices would be. Her son had to do that in her stead, even though right. she was probably pulling, making all of the financial decisions. She was probably pulling all of the strings. She still had to have her son proxy for her uh, to do, you know, sort of the, 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 the negotiating, the negotiating. Right. And he was referred to as her agent acting on her behalf, um, sort of like a power of attorney in a way. But you're right that she was making decisions and that ultimately the, the success or failure of the business was up to her. Right. So uh, very, very different structures from what we generally imagine was going on in these plantation societies or even generally. So, you know, now we're talking, we've been talking more here about the, um, about the, the white women, the, the, exactly. but you know, we also have these dynamics going on between women in, in the households generationally among the family members, but also the dynamics between the white women and the enslaved women. Can you touch a little bit about that? Well, I think about Nanette, whom you pointed out was on the one hand, she's this like Phoenix rising from the ashes, this colonial woman who takes control and we admire her, her business acumen and her tenacity. But on the other hand, she was also enslaving people. And she recognized that the growth of her business was dependent upon enslaved labor. And so she made a very conscious decision to increase the labor force at Laura through sending her sons to the slave market in New Orleans and purchasing enslaved laborers. So here she is, this, this powerful woman, and we have to recognize that power at that time in Louisiana meant a slaveholder as well. People in power 
owned slaves. People who were economically wealthy in Louisiana owned slaves. It was the reality of the time. Um, but you see her and her treatment of enslaved people contrasted in very different ways. So on the one hand, when she donated the business in 1829 to her children, she kept two enslaved women, Nina and Henriette, with her in her own household. And they were with her till her death. They took care of her when she was in her old age and be, lose, kind of um, in the, early, in the sta early stages of dementia. They were there caring for her, assisting her um, in a very um, kind of nurturing and, and um, caring way. But they were enslaved by her. But if you look at her account, she took care of them. She bought them shoes and saw that they made sure they saw the dentist and had the doctor come from the, for them. So we have all of those records. But then we also know that the enslaved people that she purchased and brought out to the sugar plantation to work in the fields, they didn't want to be there. And many, many of them ran away. And when they ran away, she would have her initials burned onto their their foreheads they were branded like cattle and they were branded with her initials the widow du parc Duparc. yeah and laura actually writes about that in her memoirs it's a one of the most vivid accounts and anecdotes that she writes in her memoirs and that's one of those stories that we tell about pa philippe trying to run away and and being captured and, and, and brought back and, and branded with Nanette's initials. So there's this, this contrast, you know, in uh, how even enslaved people are, are being treated. Um, do you think that that contrast can also be defined by, you know, the, um, oftentimes the domestics are not American, they're, they're Creole. Um, and then, you know, in, in cases like Pa Philippe, even though he has an English name, he was American, brought from Virginia. Um, do you think that there's some difference in how she might have treated, how Nanette might have treated enslaved Creole people versus enslaved American people? I think it might be true for Nanette in that also the early years, the people who were first here were African, the enslaved people were African and Creole. And so when they were building the business and when they were getting their start, just everything from erecting the house to outbuildings to everything else, um, just learning the process and growing, she was doing it in a way side by side with these enslaved workers. It was very small workforce. She had to get her hands dirty too, not in the same way that they did, but still she was working alongside them. So there was this sense of almost companionship. I hesitate to use that word, but some kind of um, investment in each other's survival. Because in the early days of Louisiana with the high mortality rates and you're in the middle of the swamp, in the middle of nowhere, desperate to just survive, people came together to get a job done and in order to just literally have food to eat, shelter to sleep under and to make it another day. So she probably developed connections with those early enslaved workers on the plantation that she likely did not have as it expanded and grew bigger, particularly with Henriette and Nina who were Creoles and with her from the beginning. But as the plantation grew, and we look at Elizabeth, Nanette's daughter, we see that she's not going to approach people in the same way, enslaved workers in the same way that Nanette would have.
That's an, an interesting point. So as, as the wealth grows and as the quote unquote success of the business grows based Correct. upon this enslaved labor, then there's a disconnect between the enslavers and the enslaved. Um, there's, there's a distance that's, that's created. Well, we you can, can imagine that. Yeah. There's, there's this abstract difference, this metaphorical difference, but there's even a very physical, very glaring distance in terms of spatial um, relationships on the plantation. So in the beginning, they would have lived and worked in both enslaved and free very close quarters, very near each other. As the business grew, as the size of the plantation grew, it, starting about the 1840s, they built those cabins, the, the main cabins that we think of today, much farther back from the big house. I mean, we're talking a couple miles further back and out into the cypress swamps, like moving into the fields mm -hmm. so that it was very clear that these enslaved workers inhabited the, these quarters, the quarters, two parallel lines running out into the fields adjacent to the sugar mill where their work was going to be done and where that was a, a village in essence, really, and very separate from those of the, the family that owned the place who lived up in the big house and in the surrounding buildings there with their core enslaved domestic labor force that also would reside with them. Yeah. So you begin to see even in the, the landscape and how the buildings are situated, this, this hierarchy of, of power and exactly. hierarchy of, of roles within the, within the business and women were always at the very forefront of that. Right. And so we have this connection between Nanette who established it. Then her, of course, her sons and her son-in-law were the Duparc brothers and Lacool, Duparc Frere et Lacool and ran it for some time, but then they all died. The men all died and Elizabeth rose to the forefront like her mother before her and took over the business and then it donated it to her children who also died. And, and Laura was one of the heirs. And so we see her emerge as well. Yeah. And then Laura, this woman makes the conscious decision to give it all up. And she said, Nope, I'm, I'm out of here. And she gets married and moves to St. Louis. Well, they were well, also facing the world had changed and they were facing costs and economic stress that proved that the it wasn't that it couldn't be sustainable. There are people who bought it and ran it for another, uh, you know, 80 years, 100 years who who were able to make a success of it, quote unquote, success, whatever you de define that as, if you define it in a capitalistic way of profit, then yes. Um, but Laura saw that they were just getting deeper and deeper in debt. And it was this old way of life, this way of life that um, was fading. And so she did, she chose um, to leave the plantation. They sold up and, and she left. So, you know, you've got four generations of women at Laura, uh, free and enslaved, white and Afro-descended, um, who were in these very 
complicated social economic transitions and you know, sort of dependent on each other for for survival yes and the success of the business was uh, are are the the actual ability to survive on a day-to-day basis was dependent upon the way this very um, vast, diverse network of people came together. Well, and, you know, not forgetting also, there's this very clear definition as well that, that, that comes along between, you know, um, enslavers and enslaved and how that dynamic shifts over time generationally with societal changes with language changes with with uh, french colony spanish colony french colony americanization etc and all of those different forces and influence are going to have an impact on every person who who lives there and we can touch on it as as i did the fact that uh, you, we can say Henriette and Nina, oh, they they were housed in better conditions. They received medical care that many didn't. They had better clothing than those who were um, working the fields and out in the out in the quarters. However, there was always this undercurrent of of the threat of violence. Slavery was a system built upon the threat of violence. So even though, we don't have any records of, of Henriette and Nina running away or, or receiving uh, the brandings that they witnessed. They would have known and the people who had been branded and who had been so brutally treated. And they would have known that if they had made the choice to run away, that was there, always a threat against them and their children and their families. So um, we, we have to always point that out and keep that in mind. Well, I th- one of the things that I sometimes say when when I do tours, especially if we have children uh, in the tours at the very beginning, before we really start into the house, is just to remind people that plantations are are places of extreme violence, and that violence manifests itself physically, psychologically, oh yeah, and and even sexually. And I I think that being in the house uh, for women who were enslaved that's also you know mm-hmm. a, a place where they're constantly going to have to be on guard against against sexual violence as well and we have many examples of women who have endured that kind of horrific abuse at Laura plantation um, unfortunately because as we said that's the reality of the chattel system of what was going on and we tell their stories too, despite the fact that it's difficult and trying to find a way to show sensitivity, to show the, that we understand. I don't know that we'll ever understand. I'm not saying that at all understand, but have some degree of sensitivity, compassion, empathy with what these women went through so that we can ass- ensure that we handle these stories in a way that's appropriate and that's conveying the seriousness of it to visitors and to people who want to learn more. Absolutely. Because 
you know, as, as the title of the podcast suggests, we're talking about real people and real history based upon primary source documents, based upon oral histories, based upon all these kinds of things that we sift through all of the time to, to build this story for our visitors so that it remains relevant so that remains uh, true to form so that it so that it, it it conveys to them the the reality as best as we can we can convey it of what was really happening on the site so we have we've just finished up black history month um but of course we see it as black history month 365 days a, a year black history is something that we um we'll talk about and learn about and continue to present all year long. So we just, we don't do it just in one month, but we, we try to highlight those stories within the month of February. Now it's March. We're going to have women's history month, which we've been talking about women and their role, but it's also another important um, month celebrating. Can you tell us more about that, Joseph? Sure, absolutely. March is also the international month of the French language. And so uh, French was one of the primary languages spoken at Laura, along with the Louisiana Creole language, and to a much lesser degree, well, um, later in history, the English language. But, um, you know, a lot of the, the primary source documents that you deal with, that we deal with, Katie, are written in French. We have to always be cognizant mm -hmm. about the fact that you know, we're we're looking at this history in many ways through this very different lens from looking at English language documents and understanding what was happening in American history. Generally, there's this sort of subtext in Louisiana that's happening in French that sits a little bit outside of what every body kind of thinks or or understands and so uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that as well uh, in the month of March. You know, I think about my research and there are things that are so second nature to me that just they're just part of what I do now after having done it for 20 years that I don't see it as clearly as some others might. So I was I was um, interviewed by a New York Times reporter for another project that I had taken on and she asked me about the handwriting of the documents that I work with and how I was able to read them and I thought I don't know. I've just always been able to read that antiquarian, you know, very um, ornate uh, script that also can sometimes, especially in the early days, be um, ink that has um, spilled or gotten um, stained or blurred together. And these these documents that are incredibly challenging to read. And then I had to add that in addition to reading these documents that are, you know, having to transcribe them, take them from what they were and, and then put them into modern day English and, and write them up clearly so we can understand them. I also have to translate them from French or in some cases, Spanish, which I am not, a, a, I'm not, uh, I don't know Spanish other than the most basic rudimentary words. Oh, so that is and that old that Spanish I, script is... It, 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 indecipherable sometimes it is so i have not i can't speak to having done that um as much uh but with french yes i've had to translate and transcribe and you of course have helped me with that many times 
And it's something that comes into play when you're dealing with Louisiana history and history um, of any area that was um, covered by the Louisiana Purchase, which we don't think of today. So any scholar who's interested in that will have to learn French, which is very interesting because when I was growing up, my mother told me, you must take Spanish in high school. Do not take French. Spanish will be the full language for you. You will have nothing with to do with French once you graduate from school, and you will have no way to apply it, whereas with Spanish, it will be very practical. There will be real-life um, scenarios that will crop up where you will need to speak or read Spanish. I, very stubbornly, because... I'm this kind of stubborn person. Sometimes I looked to my heritage and to my grandmother who grew up speaking only French until she started school at the age of six here in Louisiana. She, her whole family spoke French until she was sent to school at the age of six and then had to learn English. And I felt that all my life very strongly that I wanted to learn that same heritage language that my grandmother spoke. So I took French in high school and then in college. And would you believe that it has actually greatly benefited me much to how ironic is that? So my mother can, uh, was not correct. French has been very beneficial for me and it's, I've built a whole career on it. Absolutely. I could make the same argument. So I think one of the things that we should do um, in the month of March is look at actually how we work with some of these documents and what some of the the techniques, what some of the um, tools that we might use to help us uh, see them, because you know I've had to do some of that myself with some of the documents at Laura as well, where there's water damage, where there are ink blots, and uh, so let's let's talk about that a little bit more in depth uh, at some point during the month of March, because I think that that our listeners might be interested in how we go about approaching that and what some of our techniques and what some of the tools that we use are to get that done, so that we can tell these kinds of stories. That sounds wonderful. I think people would love to have a window into that process uh, because like you said, for, for us, we don't even think about it really anymore because it's so much a part of our daily lives. But for other people, they do find it fascinating. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me back on. Um, I look forward to talking some more with you very soon about the work that we do to tell these real, real stories about real people, about real history. Thank you so much, Joseph. And if you enjoyed the, listening to this conversation today, remember to subscribe to our podcast so you get it directly as soon as it's released. And if you enjoyed it, like our podcast and have, uh, share a review so that it will gain invisibility to other people who might also find the subject of interest to them. Thank you so much, Joseph. It's always a delight and we'll talk again soon. Sounds good, Katie. Thank you so much. Have a great Thank day. You. you too. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We invite you to visit Laura Plantation, where you can walk in the footsteps of the people you've learned about today. For more information, see our website, www.lauraplantation.com. Our tour is based on thousands of pages of primary source documents amassed through tenacious research spanning three decades. 
At Laura, you will walk in the footsteps of the people who made history. Be in the rooms where it all happened. Join us again next week to hear real history about real people.